Welcome to WMPG Podcasts, brought to you by WMPG and the University of Southern Maine. Be sure to check out all the available podcasts at wmpg.org. Welcome to Maine Quality, where community leaders share their visions for Maine. I'm your host, Orion Breen, and this interview on the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument with Lucas St. Clair, president of Elliottsville Plantation, was recorded in April of 2017. How are you doing tonight? I'm great. So, Lucas, you saw, oversaw the final push to win community and government support for the creation of the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. So what happens now? Well, now there's a lot of work that happens in the Katahdin region. I mean, there's, there's a community, there are several municipalities around the monument that haven't had a monument in their backyard before. So this is an opportunity to begin working with, um, working with the elected officials and the chambers of commerce and the tourism groups and local revitalization groups and start to build infrastructure and, and focus on capitalizing on what many consider a new asset in their region. It's uh, taken a lot of people a lot of years for this to come pa- to pass. Uh, why do you think it finally happened now? I think a lot of different things really kind of made it all work. But, you know, when this idea was first floated 30 years ago, it was 3.2 million acres, you know, far too big to actually move forward. The paper mills were running and running strong. And so there's no reason to have another, there's no economic incentive to have anything like this. All the land was owned by somebody else. And, um, you know, so fast forward a couple decades, my mother buys the land, the proposal becomes smaller, people become a little bit more interested in the idea, the mills start to close, there's now economic incentives, and people are getting more thoughtful about what the future might be like and what's needed in the future. And then really the last five years was consolidating all of that support and bringing people together to take the actions that needed to happen, working with our congressional delegation here in Maine and the White House to make sure that they saw all the support that was there, and then sort of recognizing the Obama administration being open to the creation of new monuments. So from a timing standpoint, the the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service also was a great anniversary celebration, and it, it all kind of came together from a timing perspective, well. You told the uh, Maine Historical Society back in January that one of your biggest concerns was that people in the region would not be prepared for all the visitors who would be coming and the success that this could be. Are you worried about locals missing out on the economic benefits, you know, whether they're selling their land and businesses, developers before it really gets going or other other things? I mean, I'm not worried about it, but it is certainly the, the focus that our foundation and I'm taking uh, in the next few years is working on comprehensive planning for these communities, trying to enact some zoning. And you know, the most critical thing is for these communities to maintain their authenticity. You know, there's incredible culture that um, and this incredible heritage of the Katahdin region. If that's lost and become sort of a generic tourism destination, that's a real shame. And while I think the communities would still be able to reap some of the economic benefits, they would lose some of the cultural heritage that is so incredibly important. And so I want to make sure that that that's in place, you know, first and foremost. And and then, you know, over time, 
you know, signage will happen and, and the people will, will begin to show up and have, have a authentic experience. But the thing that, you know, many of the critics said prior to the designation is no one's going to come here, right? No one's going to come visit. But already we've seen a pretty significant increase in visitation and it's only been around for six months. So if they get, for example, this summer, if they get 1% of the visitors that visit Acadia National Park, and that's, you know, Acadia is one hour from Bangor. Katahdin Woods and Waters is one hour from Bangor. That's where the airport is. That's where the rest, the, the re- rental car is, so likely the, de- the jumping off point. So it's not hard to imagine people are going to go up the freeway and, and visit Katahdin Woods and Waters. If they get 1% of the visitors that Acadia gets, that's 30,000 new visitors. Last year, we had 1,400 people or so drive the loop road, and the majority of them were after the, the designation happened. So that, that alone is a huge increase. You know, there, was a, there was a great community moment last December when the Millinocket Marathon happened. About a thousand runners to the Millinocket in the middle of December. So imagine that happening 30 times in one year. Like that's, that's significant. People are going to make, take notice. And that's just a 1% of the visitors to Acadia. So I want people to kind of recognize that it, it will happen. And, and to get, get prepared for it is, I think, a really important thing. So how are you how are you helping this community get prepared? Well, we've done a variety of things. First is um, we've created a friends group. So similar to Friends of Acadia, we've created the Friends of Katahdin Woods and Waters. We've put a board together um, and we will um, hire an executive director here in the next few months. That organization will play a, part, a real philanthropic partnership with the Park Service. They'll be able to raise money and, and spend it building infrastructure within the park and within the communities. And many community members um, have been invited to sit on our board. So um, it's a real, there's a real intersection between community leaders, people from the chamber and, and our organization. We'll also be able to sort of develop needs and, and look at what, you know, take an inventory of what needs are there. EPI, our foundation, uh, brought a cohort of people from the Katahdin region to a, a, a training in West Virginia that was put on by the uh, Conservation Fund and the Urban Lands Institute. And it's balancing commerce and natural resources in gateway communities was the, was the goal of the conference. And we brought the CEO of the hospital and people from the school board, from Chamber of Commerce, elected officials, business owners, and they they learned from other communities and you know sort of best practices about how to start incorporating a, this designation into their into their daily life. We're working on a making downtown Millinocket a wireless zone, so there'll be free wireless in downtown Millinocket. Um, working with Axiom to set that up. So you know, right now there's. There's very little places to get cell phone reception or or emails or, or internet. So in some ways it's self-serving, but you know you can get out of your car in downtown Millinocket and have wireless. That'll be hugely helpful for tourists that are coming. Can um, you do that in uh, every medium-sized town in Maine? That'd be great. <laughs> it would be great. Yeah, I mean, there. It's really interesting how there's this perception of remoteness from down. You know, people down here in Portland are like. Oh my gosh! I could potentially drive off the end of the earth if I go too far in northern Maine, and you know it seems so far away. But if you go up there and you have cell phone signal and the internet, and there's a place to get coffee and a cool brewery, all of a sudden it feels a lot closer. And so that's what we're trying to build that infrastructure up there, so it feels like a more appealing place for people from other places to go. I was joking. You know, you can start driving in Portland north, and in eight hours, being like. 
Sanagat in northern Arista County. You could drive eight hours south of Portland and be in Philadelphia. You know, it's like, it's amazing how big the state is. And so um, all these rural communities, I think, can really benefit from finding ways to be attractive to the places as far as Philadelphia, which really are only a day's drive away from here. So which has the better cheesesteak? Prescott or Philly? <laughs> let's let's not, do a test. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe in we should just go and, yeah, taste, do a taste test. I know that people in Philadelphia take the chilies, the, the cheesesteaks very seriously, so I'm not willing to answer that question. Well, we have moose, uh, moose cheesesteaks. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, those are, those are, that's where we're focusing um, right now with the foundation, trying to get – trying to build some of the infrastructure and – trying to do some of the the skills that people that are working in the tourism industry, the hospitality industry could use. We funded a program at the Katahdin Area Training Center, that, um, which is a part of the Eastern Maine Community College. They have a campus in East Millinocket for, so you can get an associate's degree in outdoor recreation. They teach people how to work in the outdoor industry, so you can become a park ranger, for example. So they're, they're having their first graduating class this May, we were working to establish a fellowship that um, where, a, where a fellow would come and work in the community to sort of capitalize on some of the assets they already have. The one we're working on now is with the local library to get the Millinocket Library really thriving and turn it into a real community center. And, and that's been a lot more exciting because we're actually seeing seeing progress. There's you know you, there's tangible outcomes of this work. So you weren't just some guy in Portland who showed up and said, "Let's make a national monument," and then you left. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the trick here is, is to see it, you know, not to the end because the National Monument is going to be here into perpetuity, but, you know, to stick with it. There's an, there's an opportunity to really get some significant things done here. So talking about that perpetuity, uh, you said back in January you felt pretty secure that the status of the monument is going to be fine under the Trump administration. You still feel like everything should be a good knock on wood? Yeah, I feel the designation will remain and the land will remain in the Park Service and will remain as a national monument. And there are many legal reasons why that will that will happen. Um, I'm more concerned about the potential budget and how much money is appropriated to the Park Service. Um, you know, it's going to take more than Donald Trump's paycheck to <laughs> fix what's happening right now. And, and that's troubling. And, and, and there have been times in our country's history where we've used national parks as a um, sort of as retribution for things that people don't like. And so you could zero out a budget of a certain park unit and they wouldn't get any money. And that has happened in the past. I wouldn't be terribly surprised if something like that happens here. Although now, Congressman Poliquin, Senator King, and Senator Collins have seen the economic benefits. They've seen the community to change really in a really short period of time and embrace this new designation. And so they, I don't think, would be particularly interested in seeing that happen. So I think they will begin to advocate for this park on a national level. And then there's also the endowment. The endowment that was created to support the park can pay for the infrastructure. You know, we have an office at the, in, or the Park Service has an office in the uh, Patton Lumberman's Museum and on Main Street, of Millinocket that opened up the day after the president declared this a national monument. And the only reason that could happen so soon was because of the endowment that was created. 
And EPI has our paid staff that lives in the region, and they're working as volunteer coordinators, and they're, they're, they're really bringing a lot of people as volunteers into the park. That's giving it a, a huge leg up when it, when it comes to, to these types of designations. So, I mean, even before it was a national monument, you were building infrastructure to show more what it would look like as a park, putting in roads, signs, and much-needed toilet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we had this sort of uh, this point in the campaign where people kept saying, you know, this isn't, it's not worthy of being a national park. And for those of us that had been through it, we're like, what? It's so beautiful. Like, and then we started to realize, wait, people aren't going and seeing it. And so we had this, like, you know, if it walks like a duck, it talks like a duck, it's probably a duck. So we're like, if it looks like a park and feels like a park, it's going to be a park. And so we built a loop road. We started making brown signs with white lettering and, you know, put in the vaulted toilets and just made a map. And so it became clear that it's open. Come on in, see what's there. And as people started visiting, um, people from the community and, and people from other places started visiting, they started recognizing what was there. And I think one of the most significant advantages is people from away, people from other places would come and visit and then talk about how nice it was to people that lived around it. And, you know, you know as well as I, growing up in a forested state in a rural community, like, yeah, trees. There's tons of them. <laughs> like, what difference does that make? But if you grew up in southwestern Utah, seeing all these trees and rivers and ponds, it's like, oh, my gosh, this is really a significant difference. It's a really beautiful place. So context plays a lot into it. So we wanted to have people come and visit from other places and then sort of express their sense of wonderment to the local communities and that that really did happen what have you seen of you know when you first started getting more involved in this the attitudes i'm sure there's many people who say no way in heck do i want something like this and then their attitude changed so what what did you see how did you see attitudes change what were people saying at the start and then what were people saying now yeah i think i mean a lot of it was Early on saying, you know, we don't want to replace these jobs in the forest products industry with tourism. And the position that we took and the messaging that we used was this is not a zero sum game. We're not trying to replace those jobs. We're trying to add new jobs. And clearly we need them, right? We need new jobs in the Katahdin region. And this isn't pitting the forest products industry against the, the conservation community. This is about adding to jobs in rural Maine. It's about creating a higher quality of life, a, a place to live that becomes enhanced, ideally bringing in a more diversified economy. Because if we rely just on a mill or if we rely just on a park, you, we see the challenges that are facing. We saw it during sequestration and the government shutdown in Acadia. When Acadia closed down, right in the height of the, you know, the, the tourist season in the fall, like businesses took a huge hit. And we've seen it in Bucksport, Lincoln, and Millinocket, East Millinocket. When a mill shuts down, everything depends on that mill. So we have to have a more diversified economy in the Katahdin region. You know, and Maine's good at that, right? We, you know, most of roughly 80% of the, of the workforce in Maine works for companies that have less than 20 employees. So we're good at rural, small business, entrepreneurial types of activities. But in, there are some communities that were built around a big mill. 
or built around a national park. And so we have to make sure that we're able to diversify the economies in those in those places. Well, and the other thing I've heard people say is, oh, well, we have Baxter. Why would we need this? But this serves a different purpose than Baxter. Baxter is more shy. <laughs> they want to <laughs> protect the critters, but this is more community and activity focused. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Baxter and I... I love Baxter, you know, I, and I've climbed Todd many times and I've been all through that park and it's an incredibly important asset for the state. But it's set up as a wilderness area. You know, it's managed more for the critters and the habitat than it is for people. And that was Percival's concept and that was what he paid very close attention to when he enacted the, the state park and made the gifts of land to the state and you know, national parks are the, the the legislation that created the National Park Service and the Organic Act that was um, signed into law in 1916 says to conserve unimpaired for future generations' enjoyment. So not only is it about conservation forever, but it's about people enjoying it forever. And that's a real important thing to understand that national parks are really for people. I think that's one of the fundamental differences between Baxter and. Katahdin Woods and Waters. They're complementary to each other. Exactly. Yeah, they're very complementary to each other. Not everybody, 90% of the visitors want to go to the top of Mount Katahdin. They go into Baxter State Park. That's sort of what you do. You go to Baxter, you climb the mountain. Um, How many of those actually make it to the top? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the percentage is, but it's... I feel like every time I go, they're like, it's sunny down here, but there's a hailstorm or a thunderstorm <laughs> yes. at the top. So don't go up there all the way. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We did several focus groups in the Katahdin region when I when I first started working on the campaign. We we're like, all right, where are people's heads at? You know, wh- what do they hate about this idea? What do they love? What's going on well in the region? And so we had four four different focus groups. They were that were done in Millinocket. Not a single person in any of those focus groups in the last decade had been into Baxter. We we're like sixteen miles from the entrance, and the moderator was from Washington D.C. and he's like really? He's like, even I've been to Baxter, you know, like it was just a, it was, and it was so surprising for me to hear that, you know, for folks living in the Katahdin region, they never needed to capitalize on it. And it's limited, you know, 65,000 people go visit it. So that's not a huge amount. What parallels do you see to how the Northwoods National Monument, how that started and how Acadia got started? I mean, the similarities are, are really interesting. The legislation was passed by the state to try to block the monument. There, um, you know, a wealthy landowner bought land that he wanted to donate it, donate to the park. Uh, he convinced a couple of other wealthy landowners to also join him in the fight. But, you know, George George Dorr went to Washington, D.C. and lobbied the delegation to come back to Maine and work with the local communities. And in that sense, that's exactly what I was doing for the last five years, you know, spending time in the Katahdin region and going back down to D.C., going back and forth. Interestingly, the Acadia and sort of the, the rusticators that live there were like, whoa, like we don't want a national park here because then a bunch of people are going to come and we have to share this little, you know, this island they called Eden with other people. And in the Katahdin region, no one was going there and they didn't believe anyone would come there. And it wasn't these small little parcels of land. It was big, open country. And so from a landscape standpoint, they were very different. And from the people that inhabited the places, they were very different. Um, but, you know, fast forward a hundred years and Acadia is this, you know, this huge economic driver for 
Hancock County and for the state of Maine. And it's visited by people from all over the world. And also provides a really interesting bookend for the people that come and visit here. You know, I hear from people in Acadia all the time, like, where do we go see a moose? It's like, not in Acadia. <laughs> it's like, they're not, you, you know, you go up the road. And so there could be people now that are going to stay in Maine longer, extend their vacations in the state, so because there's multiple things to see. It'll potentially take some of the pressure off Acadia. You know, Acadia is 35,000 acres, essentially, on MDI. You know, they got 3.2 million visitors last year. That's a, that's a chunk of visitors for a pretty small area. You know, you, by comparison, you could fit about two and a half Acadias in Catawba Woods and Waters. Well, you could, that's like twice the population of the state of Maine, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, it's right. I never thought about it in, that, in those terms, but it's pretty wild. I mean, if, if, like I was saying earlier, if they get 1% of the visitation, they get 30,000 visitors. That's that's larger than the population of the entire Katahdin region. Yeah. If they get you know, 5% of the visitation, we're talking the entire population of Penobscot County. <laughs> it's like this is a sparsely populated area that could, could really use some influx of dollars. Did you uh, talk with the Plum Creek folks about yeah, their yeah. experience? Interestingly enough, I did. I, when I, I, before I started working on this, I was living in Seattle, and Plum Creek's headquarters are in Seattle, and I called the former president of Plum Creek, and was like, hey, I, I'm working on this project. I'm thinking about going back to Maine to work on, and he invited me to his office, and we chatted for a while, and he was like, Oh yeah, that's tough. Like he hit the time he was like, "Oh man, good luck with that." We were just battling up there for a long time, and and but it was interesting because he was like, "This landscape is so spectacular," and yeah. he loved the loved the place and loved the sort of commitment of the people that live there. You know, they really there's just an independent nature of of the people that live in in Maine in general, and and ultimately they found a, a good compromise, and I think people were generally happy with how it all ended um but yeah they were, they were definitely like good luck you know that's it's not gonna be easy and they were right it wasn't easy so you're you're not abandoning this project what's i was gonna ask what's next for you it sounds like more work in the katahdin woods and waters yeah um you know we're going through a strategic planning process here at the foundation and so that's um sort of a few other projects that have emerged there i mean over time this is something that the community is going to have to own and you know so i will help in any way i can to facilitate good learning and and good collaboration but at the end of the day ultimately this is these decisions that are made should not be mine they should be made by the elected officials in the communities and by the business community and by the chambers of commerce and by the park service. And so, you know, I want ownership there and for them to have as much skin in the game as they can. And and early on, we had all the skin in the game because we were the ones that owned the land that was being donated. And it was about our land and it was about the monument. And so we were very active in, in that process. But now it's the country's land it's all of our national monuments and it's their communities and so i can be a voice but i want to be sort of a voice in a choir as opposed to the lead advocate for what needs to happen so when you were talking to the main historical society back in january which is a great podcast i recommend people look it up you're talking about parks as storytelling and 
the idea of culture and heritage and that this isn't replacing it, that this can enhance it. Yeah, we're not trying, as you said earlier, you're not trying to replace the forest product industry, but complement it and have more than one industry going on because you can't just have a park or just have forestry. Right. Having both is better. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so that's what's my like, favorite aspect about the National Park Service is that, you know, they tell America's stories. And I remember going to Lowell, Massachusetts, where there's a national um, national park unit in the old in the old cotton mills. And, you know, Lowell, Massachusetts was had fallen on very hard times when the cotton mills left. And um, Park Service rehabilitated the mills, put artist studios, residencies in it, and then built one floor and put together some old looms. It was sort of demonstrational so you could see the, the looms working. But then their interpretation as you walk through these old mills, you learned about slavery and growing cotton and um, the, the textile trade and hydropower and why it all changed and how, you know, shipping and brick making. You know, it's like here's the history of all. It's a really fascinating story. Child labor laws. You know, child labor laws came into effect because of the textile industry in New England. Like, that's amazing pieces of history. And when I first went there, I was like, what in the world are we going to do here? You know, it's a couple old mills. Like, I've seen plenty of old mills in from Maine. But it was it was fascinating to learn that. And that the Park Service does that incredibly well. It's not all about Yosemite and Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon. It's, you know, the Civil War battlefields and Vicksburg. Vicksburg, Mississippi, learning about the, the two-year siege that 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 city was under during the during the war you know it's an amazing part of american history we took our kids to gettysburg we took our kids to see the right um the wright brothers national park out on the outer banks on kill devil hills just outside of kitty hawk and you know a hundred years ago these two brothers from ohio tinkering in their garage changed the history of mankind on our you know on our planet things have not been the same since they like figured out air pressure over the wing foil and here it is on this sand dune this whole story is told and it you know that's that's pretty profound and that's exactly what is going to happen in the Katahdin region the log drives and the these in East Millinocket and Millinocket those mills were the largest paper making mills on the planet it's just incredible and what the how the labor unions advocated for workers rights and how the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act played into the Penobscot River and how those mills operated in and Thoreau and, and Roosevelt. You know, as a young man, Roosevelt tramped all over this national monument, climbed Mount Katahdin. William O. Douglas, the longest serving Supreme Court uh, justice, spent a lot of time in the Wasada Cook Valley. He even wrote about the Wasada Cook Valley at great length. And there's really cool pieces of American history that can be told in this landscape and it's nothing to feel bad about this you know if anything it's a, it's a way to feel patriotic and proud of your history that you know this the president of the united states recognized that this landscape is one of the, the treasured landscapes of the uh, of, of america that's a pretty cool thing and so that's definitely what i'm excited about when i think you know there there is no grand canyon there's no old faithful but there are some really beautiful things to see, and there's an incredible story to be told. Well, thank you for coming on. I'm Orion Breen, and with us today was Lucas St. Clair. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Maine Quality, where community leaders share their vision for Maine. I'm your host, Orion Breen. 
This has been an MPG podcast brought to you by WMPG and the University of Southern Maine. Be sure to check out all the available podcasts at wmpg.org.